or you can check us out on social media. Well, good morning, Firewheel. You have now been informed of all that is happening uh, this week and coming weeks. I'm glad you're here this morning. If we've not met, my name is Chris Carroll. I am the lead pastor here at Firewheel, and we are in a verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. And so with that said, uh, let's open our Bibles. Everybody say, Word. We are going to be in Acts chapter 10, but just for context to kind of let you know where we have been up until now, we have seen the, ch- the birth of the church. And in fact, before we go any farther, let's just say hi to everybody who's camping. Can you guys just look back here by the camera? Say hi! We got a bunch of people camping and on vacation. They're on Facebook right now just watching. We can see you. Is it, it's on, right? So they can hear me? They can see us? Hi! I hope you all are enjoying your camping trip and uh, time with some folks in West Texas. Anyway, it's just great to have people be able to join us uh, from, from different parts of, of Texas and really the country when folks are traveling. But anyway, so for context, the, the church has been birthed. We've seen the spread of the gospel. Uh, in fact, we saw a least likely last week, past couple of weeks, one of the least likely in history give his life to Christ and through a divine appointment. Jesus' light shone around Saul, and this tyrant, this persecutor of the church, became this, this great proclaimer and great preacher to the extent where he was literally sent from Jerusalem into hiding back to his home city uh, because there were so many death threats on his life. Well, the narrative takes a pretty unique turn. So we, we were looking at Saul, and now the narrative is going to switch our attention back to Peter. As you'll remember, Peter, the apostle, the great leader of the early church, is now going to be the focus of our study. And, and really, under the microscope of, of our, uh, our eye that today is this, this concept of prejudice. We're going to hop over uh, the last part of chapter 9. It shows uh, different situations where Peter was used as an agent of healing to get into chapter 10, because I think this is a pretty important topic, topic of prejudice. And I'll make this statement that prejudice is one of the greatest hindrances to the spread of the gospel. Prejudice is one of the greatest hindrances to the spread of the gospel. And and please hear this. Jesus is in the business of tearing down the walls of prejudice in our hearts so that the gospel can break out. I'm going to say that again. Please don't miss that. Jesus is in the business of tearing down the walls of prejudice that exist or may exist in our hearts so that the gospel can break out. And what we may not realize is that prejudice it was not, is not just a 21st century issue. It was a first century issue. Jesus needed to tear down that wall of prejudice in the heart of Peter and the other apostles and in the early church so that the gospel could spread. See, what we may not realize is that the early church was absolutely steeped in aggressive and debilitating prejudice. It was hindering the spread of the gospel to like 99% of humanity. I always find it interesting when somebody tells me we need to have an Acts 2 church. Our church needs to model Acts 2. And I, and I get the spirit in the heart of that sentiment. You know, when you look at Acts chapter 2 and the, the early church of how they had all things in common, how they were under the disciples' teaching and they, they were sharing and they were with, with liberality giving. And it, we look at that and we're like, wow, that's so great. But what we don't realize when people make that statement, it was all Jewish. The early church was a Jewish church. And... Not only was it Jewish, but it was prejudice in its Judaism. Uh, The gospel was only considered uh, for the Jewish people. Nobody was thinking that, hey, the gospel is for the Gentile people. All that changes in Acts chapter 10 and 11, as we're going to see. Now, Peter and other Jewish Christians had grown up in Jewish homes and communities where they had been conditioned to avoid, separate from, uh, maybe even antagonize and hate 
Gentiles. That was a massive category of people that includes everybody who's not Jewish. Okay, so just think about how large a category of people that would have been. Like 99.9% of earth were considered unclean from this perspective. Just touching a Gentile would make somebody ceremonially unclean. Touching something that a Gentile had touched would make them ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. And so that is a deeply entrenched prejudice and racism that the Lord was going to have to deal with so that the gospel could break out. Uh, and so this prejudice filling the heart of Peter and the atmosphere of the early church basically meant that the early preachers were only preaching to Jewish people. That's why up till chapter 10 you see the gospel being proclaimed in synagogues and at the temple because that's where the Jewish people gathered. Except for that one little note of, of Philip reaching the Ethiopian eunuch, but he was kind of a Greek Jew, so he was already kind of an outsider. Uh, but we see the, the primary focus is the, the synagogues and the temple, and all that's going to change, specifically because of the life of a guy by the name of Cornelius. And so with all that said, Acts 10, verse 1. It says, there was a man uh, at, at Caesarea, uh, Caesarea, by the way, not Caesarea Philippi, but Caesarea on the coast. I wish I had a map for you. Maybe next week I'll get you a map, but um, right there on the Mediterranean port city, a guy by the name of Cornelius, who was a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. So we learn a little bit about this guy, a very well-respected Roman uh, official, more uh, kind of compared to a, a captain in the military today. And so he was over a large group of men. In fact, we're told that it is the Italian cohort that he had oversight over. And then we learn about his inner character. Okay, so we can see him professionally, but now we're going to see him internally and spiritually. He was a devout man who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people, and he prayed continually before God. And so what we see here is you have this well-respected Roman official, but who is also devout and God-fearing. And that statement, God-fearing, Luke uses that to tell us that this is a Gentile who believed in the God of Israel. No, in view of that, all the red tape that he'd have to go through to worship the God of Israel, pretty staggering stuff, to think that he was willing to go through all that to be a God-fearer. Guys like him could not go into the temple. I mean, he could go as far as the court of the Gentiles, but no further. He was not invited into the intimacy of Jewish worship unless he was willing to get surgery. And even if he got surgery, he'd still pretty much be an outsider his whole life. But what we see here is he's faithful. And it's not just a faithfulness that was exhibited in his own life, but it was a faithfulness of family, his whole family, his whole household, his servants, and even some of his soldiers were devout. That tells me his testimony spread. Others saw his worship of God and worshiped in like fashion. And in ignorance, he's living out the great commandment. I mean, think about it. When the attorney came up to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? How did the Lord respond? You all remember? I don't want to get it wrong. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and mind. You say your strength too, all of your innerness. And love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so when we look at the greatest commandment, and it's broken up into two parts, there's a vertical, loving God with everything and loving people as yourself. And you all remember the religious attorney then said, well, then who's my neighbor trying to justify himself? But we're not getting into that. So this guy, he loved God. I mean, we see that right there in the very first two verses. He continually prayed to him and he feared God. He walked in respect of God. He loved people. He gave alms generously and with liberality. He was generous in spirit and action. 
And now it's important for us to uh, recognize that this man did not have a relationship with Jesus. So we wouldn't look back and go, well, this guy is saved right now. But in ignorance, he was worshiping pretty faithfully. And in fact, not only do we get to see how faithful this man was, but God recognized how faithful he was. You know, sometimes in the church, we take this, this hierarchical view of people, like we look down on people and their service and their ethic and their morality. Well, they're not believers, so they're somehow lesser than me. Well, when I look at that, I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let's, have, let's have eyes like God has eyes, because here's the deal. We sometimes look on people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett and hundreds of others who are literally giving billions away, and we go, well, they're not doing it because of Jesus, so it's like kind of diminishes that. And I'm like, there are people who don't have a relationship with Jesus who demonstrate a greater ethic and greater character and a greater heart of spirit of generosity than some of our faithful critics in the church, Right? You guys have some really good people around you who are unbelievers, right? Do you? They're good people, right? Great neighbors. You know, they're helpful. They're friendly. They go out of their way to bless. They don't have a relationship with Jesus, but God still sees the goodness of them. That's not enough to save them, though. Okay, we need to see that, and we'll see that here in just a moment. Verse 3. This is how God saw Cornelius. For whatever reason, God just didn't look down and go, Wow, that pagan. He, he, like, actually res- respects this guy. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. Isn't that wonderful? How many of you take comfort that God knows us by name? Isn't that wonderful? Cornelius, I shaped you. I fashioned you. I've known you from your very first breath. Cornelius. He stared at him in terror. So he's encountering this angel of the Lord. I do not believe this is Jesus. I believe he's encountering an angel, a servant sent by God. But it's interesting how Cornelius responds. What is it, Lord? Why, who, who else had a statement that was similar to that in chapter 9? You all remember that? That's right. Saul, last week we saw that. When, when Jesus appeared to him, he said, Who are you, Lord? And so here, Cornelius responds almost in like fashion. What is it, Lord? What can I do for you? And he said, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. That is wonderful. That statement of memorial rising, it's, it's really a picture of what would take place in the temple. When, when the Jews would offer a sacrifice that was pleasing to the Lord, the Lord would smell from heaven. It was a pleasing aroma. Well, he couldn't go into the temple, but his almsgiving, his prayers, his walking in devout faith, that was a blessing to God and a memorial of, of rejoicing. But I want you to see here, as, as pleased as God is, it wasn't enough to save him. He was so close, all he needed was the gospel. And this is kind of interesting, because in, in global missions work, when, when missionaries are sent out, there are stories of missionaries being sent to very, very remote places on the planet where they, there was no way they heard the gospel, there's no way that the Bible had gotten to them or whatever, and these missionaries would show up and a whole community of people, we, we knew you were coming and we know this God you speak of, we've been worshiping him our whole life, tell us more, they hear the gospel and the whole community comes to faith. It's just this beautiful masterpiece that God is painting of salvation, but look at verse 5. It says, now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner. I mean, that's kind of confusing, right? Like Simon, this guy's Peter, but the Simon who's a tanner. And when it says tanner, it's not like he visited tanning salons, okay? So it's not like that guy, it's like the middle of winter. You're like, how are you tan right now? It's not, no, he tanned hides. I know some of you were like wondering about that, right? I'm sucking you up, okay? So the tanner who is uh, in a house by the sea, so he's going to send... 
not only a couple of servants, but a soldier. Look at verse 7. It says, when the angel spoke to him, when he had departed, he called two of his servants, and what kind of soldier? That is the same word that described Cornelius. Here's another believer. Sends a devout soldier from among those who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. He's like, okay, guys, here's what happened. This angel came to me. He said that you're supposed to go down to Joppa. You're supposed to go first find Simon, who's the tanner, but you're going to go there to get Simon, who is Peter. Okay, you got that, guys? Repeat it back to me. Okay, so we have this picture of two servants and a soldier, and they're making their way 30 miles south to Joppa. That's all the information that they have. Okay, and what we get here as students of the scripture, we get the bird's eye view. We get to see how this whole divine appointment unfolds. They had no idea what to expect when they got to Joppa, except they were looking for Simon, a tanner, who, where there's Simon the Peter that they're going to bring back with them. Now the narrative is going to flash all the way south to Joppa a day later, and God is going to bring the other party up to speed. I love how this plays out in the text. It says the next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city. Okay, so they're like almost to the city of Joppa. That's when God speaks to Peter. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And uh, often is the case for all of us, it's six hours, about 12 o'clock. So when you're in here, it's about 12 o'clock. We all become a little bit hungry, don't we? So he gets hungry and he wanted something to eat. And while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Like some of you will on Thursday while you smell the turkey and the pies and all that and you're sitting there watching the football game and you fall into that trance in the easy chair. You all do that? <laughs> Any guys in here? None of you guys sit in the chair and just go into a trance? It's my favorite time of the year. <laughs> so it's roughly 12 in the afternoon. It's not a food-induced trance by any means. This is a, a trance, a vision that God is going to give to him. He is going to be sent as a messenger and a prophet to uh, Caesarea and really uniquely to the Gentile people. So let's see this unfold. Verse 11. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet was descending, be let down by its four corners upon the earth. And so this is like the sail of a ship, a great sail unfurling in front of him from the heavens on down. And on this sheet was a very unique and possibly nauseating mix of animals for Peter. And I'll get to that in just a moment. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. So on this sail appears all of these animals, clean and unclean. And when I'm talking about clean and unclean, please don't get it confused with this whole like cultural revolution of eating clean food versus unclean food. And the people who eat clean food look down on the people who eat. Well, actually, it's very similar. Okay, so you've got these unclean animals. And just a, a quick reading of Leviticus 11, which is, I'm sure, your favorite passage of Scripture, right? I've memorized it. That's my favorite. That's where I get my life verses from. Uh, but Leviticus 11 is where you're going to find the discussion of clean and unclean animals. Okay, so the Jewish people, there were certain animals that they were allowed to eat and certain animals they were to abstain from and not even touch. Well, on this sheet, you've got both clean and unclean animals. And then comes the anthem of Texas, right? rise, kill, and eat, which all God's people said, amen. All they need to add there is then fry it and then eat it, and then it would be the national anthem of Texas, rise, kill, fry, and eat. Uh, and this was not something that he was willing to do. John Stott writes this. This is so good. Evidently, this was a mixture of clean and unclean creatures calculated to disgust any Orthodox Jew. 
See, Peter's looking at this mix, and he's like, no, I can't eat that. In fact, he makes a statement that I, I really strongly discourage you from making in your spiritual life. Listen to how Peter responds. Peter said to him, by no means, Lord. <laughs> There's two statements that don't go together, Lord and no, right? Because if he's Lord, it's always yes and amen. But Peter's like, by no means, Lord. I don't know if he just thinks God's testing him, but it also shows the impetuous uh, nature and characteristic of Peter. We see him all through the gospel sticking his foot in his mouth. But by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And you could also add in there, I have not associated with people who are common or unclean. The dietary law was really the foundation of separation from the Gentiles. <sighs> I can empathize, though, because what God is telling Peter to do is something he would never have ever in a million years considered doing. But then the Lord speaks again. Verse 15, it says, And the voice came to him again a second time. Listen to this statement. What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times so Peter wouldn't miss it. Like to ensure that he got the drift. And, and really this is a place where commentators will look in and go, well, this was a pretty dramatic shift in Jewish thought. And it, it always thought as, as Jewish Christians, they had believed that the, the food laws always remained. But somehow at this point they had changed. And, and here's the reality. Jesus had already declared all foods clean. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus delivered a parable that confused the disciples. And then when they went into a quiet place, the disciples say, said, hey, what does that mean? And Jesus was like, are you still so dull of heart? What I'm telling you is what enters the body doesn't make a person unclean. No matter what you eat, that doesn't make you unclean. It's what comes out of your heart that makes you unclean. So you eat something, you drink something, it goes through the body, and you know the physiological process. You guys can catch that drift. It just exits the body. But it's what comes out of the heart that defiles a human being. That's where you find the murder and the adultery and the hatred and the violence. It's all wrapped up in our hearts. Jesus is like, you don't need to avoid certain foods. You need a heart transplant. But that didn't mean they ran out and bought a package of bacon, okay? Like, they still didn't realize that they were free to eat clean and unclean animals. And so what we need to realize, it's not about food. Please don't just sit here and go, man, I really love bacon. Oh, gosh, yeah. bacon-wrapped. Anything bacon-wrapped is better, right? Okay. Green beans. By themselves, boring. Add bacon, Delicious, right? Peter's, stay focused, guys. This is church. We're focused on God's word. Okay, so here's another quote. I love this by R.C. Sproul. It says, he says this, Peter's vision was not about food or animals. It was about what? People. Oh, we can get so caught up in religion that we forget that it's about people. God loves people. And so at this moment, as he's sitting there and he's like, Gosh, what does that mean? There's a knock at the door. Verse 17, it says, Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision uh, that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who stood, uh, or who were sent by Cornelius, made, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate, and they called out to see whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So they went through the city, and they're like, Hey, we're looking for Simon the Tanner. And in Simon the Tanner's house, there's Simon who's Peter. And so they found Simon the Tanner's house, and they call out. They're like, Is Simon Peter here? And at that exact moment, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter these words. The Holy Spirit said to Peter, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise, go down, accompany them without hesitation. Do not delay, for I have sent them. So all this comes together. You all see how this is a divine appointment? Isn't that amazing? You ever have an experience in your life and you're like, 
whoa, that was really weird how all that came together like perfectly, like our footsteps, are, everything just like fits together. And, and God's like, oh my gosh, I, every day is a divine appointment. <laughs> you know, we just get these aha moments. Well, here's a great picture of how a divine appointment works. Verse 21, Peter went down to the men and he said, I am the one you're looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And so they relay all that, that Cornelius had, had told them to say to Peter. And so Peter decides, okay, well, why don't you guys come on in? So he invites these three Gentiles into the house, and now he's lodging with Gentiles. He's getting real messy. And just the fact that he's hanging out with a guy who worked in dead animal skins already made him messy. I love this. The gospel is making Peter pretty messy. And I'm going to tell you right now, you live out the gospel, you're going to get pretty messy. You're going to be around messy people. You're going to be around folks that you, you might not, prior to Christ, have ever associated with or even considered. But now all of a sudden, you're like, in, you're like sharing God's love with them, and you're getting their mess on you. And, and uh, it's just a beautiful mess. I love this. The gospel lies beyond some of these walls we build. Sometimes we want to hide behind fortified walls of clean Christianity. Family, get out. We got to get out. We got to be in people's lives. We got to be inviting them into our life. Jesus is in the business of tearing down the walls of prejudice so that the gospel can break out. So the next day he rose, he went with them and some of the brothers from Joppa, and they accompanied him. And this group, mixed group of Jews and Gentiles, make their way up to Caesarea Philippi, or not Philippi, Caesarea, to go meet with Cornelius. And the encounter happens. Look at verse 24. It takes them a day to get there about 30 miles by foot. And it says, on the following day, they entered Caesarea and Cornelius was expecting them. He never had such an honored guest. He's like, oh, he has no idea who's coming. He's like, oh God, this is going to be amazing. And it, what did he do? What did he do in preparation? <laughs> he called everybody. He, he literally packed the house with Gentiles. It's like the most unclean house in the entire city. And this devout Jew's about to walk in. I love it. Verse 25, when Peter entered, Cornelius met him, oh, this is weird, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. See, he, was, he lived in this world of Roman hierarchy, and maybe this was a divine person. But there, we get to see here, there's no room for self-exaltation in Christ. We're all just servants. Peter immediately reaches down and lifts him up saying, stand up, I'm just a mere mortal like you. Verse 27, as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. Can you imagine Peter walking in and going, oh my gosh. It was just a couple of Gentiles, not the whole house. I'm going to have some explaining to do. And he's going to have some explaining to do. When he gets back to Jerusalem, he's like, oh my gosh, how am I? There's a whole house full of... And look at how he speaks. I, this is so funny to me. I'm like, how do you not take this offensively? Peter said to them, you yourselves know... How unlawful it is for a Jew to associate or visit with anyone of another nation. He's basically like, you know you all are dirty, right? You don't think that's awkward? Could you imagine saying that? I mean, you guys know I can't really hang out with you, but I'm here anyway, so. But apparently they didn't take it offensively. What he's saying is you guys understand that as a Jew, I shouldn't be associating with you. But look what, what he says. But God has shown me. That's how profound this is. That I should not call any person common or unclean. And you know what? When I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked, why did you send for me? 
Cornelius relays all that we've already read. I'll let you go ahead and, and you can reread Cornelius' explanation. He talks about being the ninth hour and he's fasting and he's praying and God gives him this vision and sends for Peter. But listen to how Peter then begins his gospel proclamation, verse 34. Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Mary, you grab what that means, don't you? You grasp it. God doesn't show favorites. He doesn't play favorites. That right there should just... We often have a view of God that, uh, like he views people the way we view people. Mm-mm. God doesn't play favorites. And I think this is going to be a great place to stop and we'll pick right back up here next week. But we need to realize, family, the gospel's for the world. And God doesn't show partiality. So let me give you one, one final kind of extended quote. I love John Stott. I've really kind of fallen in love with his writing. Whether consciously or unconsciously, Peter has just now repudiated both extreme and opposite attitudes which human beings have sometimes adopted towards one another. First, he came to see that it was entirely inappropriate either to worship somebody as if divine or to reject somebody as if unclean. Peter refused both to be treated by Cornelius as if he were a god and to treat Cornelius as if he was a dog. Isn't that good? Gosh, he's so gifted with the pen. What a great, great quote there. But here's some applications. Prejudice has no place here. I'll say that again. Prejudice has no place here. And what I mean by that is here in the church. Now, I could move it into our hearts, but let's just start at the church level. If this passage shows us or teaches us anything is that there's no room for prejudice in the church. God doesn't play favorites, nor should we. When we set up a church only for certain people, the gospel and the love of God gets caged. Okay, Walls are built around it. Jesus is in the business of tearing those walls down so that the gospel can get out. And so I can tell you right now that the gospel and the love of God is for all people, regardless of a person's race or ethnicity, political association, socioeconomic standing, age, religion, sexual preference, gender, or gender identification, their past or their present. Do you all grasp that? The gospel is for every single person on earth. The love of God is for every single person on earth. And because we are the agents of the gospel, and this place is a, is a, a, a place that is gospel-centered, that means every single person is welcome here. And as I think through that, I have to stress that we can't actually be living out the gospel without getting messy. There are certain churches or certain philosophical perspectives that like to label people as clean or unclean, and they like to create an environment that keeps the unclean, the undesirables out. But here's my, my philosophy. I pray that God fills this place with unclean, messy, and undesirable people. Like, I pray we get messier. Are you okay with that? And here's what I, I want to praise you for. I want, I want to tell you this. I'm thankful for you because you know what? I'm not preaching at you. I'm praising you as a church. 
because I have the confidence and I have the awareness to know that no matter who God brings through that door, they're going to be loved here because you all love people. And I want to praise you for that. I can't tell you how much that encourages my heart to know that I'm a part of a church that loves people, no matter who they are. That's so rare. Do you guys realize how rare this is, what we have here? This is rare. And it's a real beauty, beautiful thing to be a part of. And so secondly, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drop some, some content on you that's going to kind of bleed into next week. Uh, but just, I want you to see this for a second. This is so cool. Okay, so love lenses. Peter had to have his prescription changed. He had these lenses on where he viewed people with, through prejudice, through eye, lenses of prejudice. And it was conditioned, and it was preference, and there's all kinds of stuff that went into the psychology of his prejudice. But anyway, he's looking out through these lenses, and he would break people into, like, clean and unclean, like, godly, ungodly. Like, and it would narrow down humanity into these little tight little categories where he's like, those are the people that I'm to love, and those are the people I'm free to hate. That's how prejudice works. God rips those glasses off his face and puts lenses of love on his face. And God says, I love everybody. And so this week I've been practicing, and this is kind of going to help you get ready for next week, but I've been practicing taking off whatever lenses I wear, whether I'm in a, a competitive spirit when I'm in the grocery store. You ever do that where you're like pushing your cart and you see that person? You don't, re- you don't tell them you see them. Like you don't pay any attention to them, but you know you're racing towards the checkout line. You ever do that? And you act like you don't see them. You have peripheral vision. You know they're there. But you don't pay attention. You don't act like they're there. And then all of a sudden you get ahead of them and you turn around and you're like, oh, I didn't even see you there. Oh, wow, you want to go ahead? I mean, I've already got all my stuff on the conveyor, but you can. Wow, sorry about that. Or in traffic where you're like seeing that person who needs to merge and you just, I don't see you. <laughs> so I started thinking to myself as I was like at the, the local coffee shop or was at the grocery store or whatever, I was like, okay, Lord, I'm going to put on lenses of love and you show me what you see. And I look around and I'm like, you love every one of these people. And you know what? I should too. It's making me less competitive. It's making me less the feeling of superiority over somebody. I'm starting to like look at people in the eye and say, God, you know, God loves you. Gosh, if we could just put those lenses on all the time at work, wherever we're at. Anyway, that's, that's just kind of front-loading for next week. But just start practicing that this week. Try that a couple of times. Just go, you know what? I'm going to put on lenses of love and see what I see. See what God sees, maybe. And so finally, I'm going to end here. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're from, no matter what you're carrying with you, no matter what baggage, no matter what skeletons you have in the closet, I can tell you the gospel's for you. You are loved. Jesus Christ died for you on the cross. He was buried and he is risen. And he extends eternal life, the gift of eternal life. It is by grace. It's a gift. He gives it. And it is purely by faith, just asking, Lord God, save my life. And no matter who you are, he will do it because he loves you. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for this incredible place of worship and this incredible place of love that, Lord, I just feel like love starts at the floor and it like fills us up all the way to the roof and we're like swimming around in it and you just pour more on us. Lord, fill us with a heart that, that beats for people. 
to love people and to, to see them the way you see them. Give us that type of, of spirit. Tear down the walls of prejudice, whatever they are in our hearts. And if you're here this morning and you, you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, just know he died for you. He loves you. And if you want to give your life to him and tell him, I believe, Lord Jesus, I, I give you my life. And understand no matter what you have done or what you've carried with you, Jesus, he loves you and he died for your sins. All you got to do is ask, Lord Jesus, please save my life. If that is your heart's prayer today, Lord Jesus, please save my life. That you believe in him. I'm going to tell you that the Bible says you've just passed from death to life. You've just received the gift of the Holy Spirit. You've received the gift of eternal life. It's irrevocable. You are forever a son or daughter of God. Welcome to the family. It's a beautiful mess. We love you, Jesus. Father, I pray you're pleased with this this congregation. We worship, we love your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, let's stand together. Y'all did great today. We need to stretch. Thanks. It's kind of nice. It's always nice to hear. Thank you. It's encouraging. Okay, so happy Thanksgiving. I'm just going to give you a word from the Lord. All diets are off this week. It's the most excited you all got this whole morning. Woo! I'm just kidding. Now go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Till we meet again, same time, same place, a few extra pounds heavier next week. And do not forget, you are love. Now go tell the world, go proclaim to the world, go demonstrate to the world that they are too. Have a great week.